0: Welcome back to episode one of the Russell Fugit Podcast. I'm Russell Fugit, and we're here today. Leadership, legacy, love. (laughs) My voice is a little bit scratchy this morning, but I'm happy to be here and feeling good and really excited to get this show going. I know I had to start at episode zero And uh, I haven't put it in the wide distribution, so the timing of when people arrive at this podcast uh, may be interesting to hear zero to one. But um, nonetheless, here we go. And this show uh, will be coming to you about twice a month. That's really the plan. And uh, we have some interesting things lined up to get us through to year end and some interesting conversations and really going to start in the next few weeks. Uh, sharing a lot primarily about what I've learned in my background and then from there uh, we'll begin uh, interviewing and I have some uh, pretty interesting interviews lined up and I'll be talking a little bit more about that today but just want to introduce myself a little bit and kind of give you a little flavor for who I am and what my story has been so far in, in this life of almost 40 years in my 40th year of life Currently, my birthday falls on Father's Day this coming summer, which is certainly going to be interesting. And I've had some thoughts around uh, organizing to do something on that day to serve and encourage other uh, men and fathers um, who are doing the work out here. And uh, as a father, I know it's not easy and um, I welcome ideas to that. You know how to reach me. You can check out more. At Fugit com sign up for my email newsletter there got some interesting things uh, brewing um, you can follow me on social media at Russell Fugit across the board uh, Instagram Facebook Twitter LinkedIn um, of course please subscribe to this podcast right now we're on iTunes in the coming days we'll be distributing to some other platforms just doing the work little by little chipping away at getting things uh, distributed if you want more of a business flavor we're also uh, launching uh, the Good Word Digital podcast, uh, Ingenious Experience Connected. That's going to be very different. Five to 15 minutes, uh, two or three times a week, uh, where we'll be getting some expertise in business, in digital, in politics, in project management, in, in business leadership and coaching. In software development and search engine optimization, Facebook ads, social media management, content creation, you name it. We're going to be having some expertise uh, in business, the marketplace, finance, man, it's just going to be so robust. Again, that ingenious experience connected. I'm excited about what I'm doing on that space. And I'm just leveraging my gifts. I heard a great sermon a few weeks ago at my church, I-5 City, uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland, near BWI Airport, if you ever want to visit with me. Hit me up. Let's do it, or just show up. Go check it out. And uh, about working your two, right? And it was about the parable of the two talents and working your two. And it's like, what are my two, right? Of course, in that parable, some people uh, God, uh, Christ gave Jesus gave one man five and one man ten, and and the one that had one went and buried him, right? I'm over here trying to qu- quote the Bible, and I'm probably. Not hitting it accurate, but the theme is still the same. The one guy buried his his talent, and then when when the the guy who gave him the talent, or Christ, came back, he said, "Well, how come you didn't do anything with it? You just, you know." He said, "Well, I was afraid, so I buried it, and and I didn't do anything with it because I didn't want to lose it. But if you bury it, of course, the idea you bury your gift, eventually the gift will will flee from you, right? If God's given you a gift." To do something but you don't use it you don't build on it then nothing's going to happen right so of course we're always looking at the people that have five talents and ten talents and wondering how they got five or ten and why can't i have at least two or three let alone five or ten what makes them so special and so great but we haven't even worked the ones we have yet so i was just thinking i said well what are my two and as you might have learned about me i like the alliteration legacy leadership and love so i said well i know i'm a communicator and a convener and in a convener meeting, I, I'm great at building consensus and bringing people together to do wonderful things. And I've had some great experiences in my life where I've succeeded at that, sometimes in a very public way, sometimes in a very private uh, or, or at scale, but not getting so much uh, notoriety. And I'll, I'll get to a few of those examples here today. Um, but those are really my two. So what are we doing? Leveraging the communication gift. Right. I've written a book. Which is still available for free download at RussellFugit.com. You can go download it. Um, but I'm going to be making that book uh, available for print this month. Uh, one of my friends put something out on social media that I was going to have it done on November 1st. And I just let my brother George down that I have not met the deadline he gave me. But it still is, is in my mind that I need to get my act together and get it printed and priced and up on Amazon where you can uh, purchase it, and uh, I think it'll be a a benchmark for me to actually have the book in print. See, I I wrote that book last year, but I really didn't have the faith to put it out there and say, who's going to want to pay for this? Let me just give it away. It's a nice thing. I never really had the courage to really think that people would want to read it and and respond to it uh, positively, right? And if people respond to it negatively, who cares? I guess I'm in that mind frame now, if you couldn't tell by episode zero. But I think I definitely still had that insecurity around it and and around it being relevant and useful. Um, of course, I've gotten some great feedback from, from a number of people over the year who've read it and engaged it. I actually gave a speech at UNBC about three weeks ago and a young man said he read the book. And this young man appeared to be of, of Asian uh, descent, um, didn't speak great English. And we had a wonderful conversation. He, he said he read the book. And that just meant so much that meant more to me than my friends and people I've been associated with in business and my family saying it was good right when someone when a young man who's in college says I heard you were coming to speak I looked you up and I downloaded and read your book and it was great and thank you I mean man <laughs> so that that told me I'm going in the right direction here and and so I need to get that out there so that's going to be happening but Russell Fugit, uh born to Jean and Ann Fugit. Uh, Sibley Hospital in D.C. My father is well known. He played for the Redskins and the Cowboys and uh, you can Google him, Gene, J-E-A-N on Wikipedia and um, he had, he uh, was drafted by the Cowboys and then came here, um, was one of the first modern free agents on the Redskins, went to law school at night at George Washington University where he finished up. And um, and my mother, uh, her grandfather was a lawyer. Her father was a lawyer and she was an attorney is now retired from the government. She wouldn't want me putting out a lot of details about what she did. Um, But she was an award winning um, appellate attorney at the Labor Department. And um, my parents separated when I was two and later divorced. And and, um, my mother uh, did a wonderful job of providing for me um, through the law. And my father was always there and, and um, you know, was in New York for a while and then later remarried in, in Baltimore. And I have a younger brother and sister um, who I'm immensely proud of and, and love dearly and, and uh, have had the revelation recently to realize that the probably the first five to 10 years of their lives when I was around before I went to college and engaged with them, that I have way more memories uh, and intimate, you know, loving memories of them than they probably have. And and that's been an interesting revelation to understand how that might have shaped our relationship and dynamic. Like, damn, like, why don't they remember? You know, <laughs> like, when I changed their diaper, right? Like, how are they gonna remember that? You know, but I always say that I changed their diaper and I, I know they sick of hearing that. Um, but man, I had a great loving uh, family growing up. Spent every other weekend in Baltimore with my cousins and, and my aunts and uncles, and really was raised by a, a tremendously amazing village um you know my my father would always uh drive me you know over when I was with him in Baltimore I have you know CYO basketball games and come over and, and take me to the game and I go back to Baltimore I go home in in, the, in Silver Spring and, and really for the first t- 13 years you know had a had a really um you know amazing life um when I look back at it, it did have challenges it was very disruptive and painful um you know, as a young person, um, going through my parents' divorce, definitely didn't realize what it was at the time. But went through counseling as a young kid, like I guess ages six, seven, eight, right? Didn't know what it was. It was just going to talk to a lady. But I had episodes where I slept, walked, and, and was really you know uh, stressed. You know, acted out in school. Didn't understand, right? And and still, you know, until my adulthood, had to grapple with with the reality and the truth of that um, fact. And and um, certainly shaped me. Right. Um, but I always, you know, feel like I knew who understood who God was. My fa- parents were both primarily raised Catholic and my father's family, especially so. And I go to church regularly. And my mother always tells a story about uh, how well, I was. A, I was a boy, uh, maybe four or five years old, no older than that. And my mother said, you know, God loves you. you know, I'm, I'm, she tucked me in tonight for bed and said, God loves you. And to which I responded, I know. And she said, how do you know that? And she said, and I said to her, I said, because he speaks to me, he tells me. And that was very profound moment to her and her faith. And I always have thought back on that anecdote of the childlike faith and even somewhat remotely having a sense of understanding that there was a relationship right between me as a person and and God And, and not, of course, understanding um completely and I guess we never truly completely understand how that plays out in life. But knowing that there was a God and that he was uh available and present, right? Um and and going uh, you know, in you know, through Catholicism and and going to Catholic school, you know, learning a lot of the right and ritual and dogma, but never really having the chance to, to grasp that reality more plainly. And it wasn't quite frankly until I got to Georgetown Prep that I really had an experience, right? And there was a retreat I mentioned last in the last episode, Kairos, which is God's time, where I really had that experience. I think I really had come to a reality of, of uh, at least a, my reality as a 14 and 15 year old in in school, um, of feeling, uh, you know, somewhat inadequate compared to, you know, my my classmates at prep. Who had intact family units? Who had mothers who didn't have to work? Who could pick them up? Um, You know, where I had to walk across the muddy golf course to get to the train or the bus stop and take a couple buses Um, after practice on some cold. After basketball practice on some cold days, you know, you know, a little bit of a pity party, ain't gonna lie. But really, was just you know feeling displaced. Um, You know, my uncle had passed in my eighth grade year. Um, you might look him up, Reginald F. Lewis, and I'll be talking more about him to, a little bit today and in future episodes, certainly. Um, but he passed, and that was a very traumatic experience to be uh, there um, shortly after he passed away in New York. And then um, first, my father was moving to New York to take over the company. And then within days of me starting at Georgetown Prep, he, told me, he called me and told me he was moving to Paris And I was deeply disruptive to the every other weekend going to Baltimore, having that unit, that village, my village was gone. And then months later, we would moved from downtown Silver Spring to further out suburban Silver Spring, which dynamic uh, drastically changed my commute. So I'm in this new school. I'd been in the same school for eight years, graduated and then a very different environment. As I spoke about last week, where I had the United Nations of friends and I was kind of the man At St. Michael's, right, and um, then went to prep, which was very different. And I was kind of like in this petri dish where everybody knew my father was this former Redskin who now ran this uh, multi-billion-dollar international food conglomerate, Beatrice Foods, and it it was it had been highly publicized. And this is in 1993. And so, you know, people would act very strange. People acted very strangely towards my mother. And, and it was like a, a level of notoriety and fame that I was deeply uncomfortable with. And even departing St. Michael's, uh, we had a field day and there were, and even at some of the basketball games, there were adults who would approach me and ask me questions, adults who I did not know. They're really inappropriate things. Um, you know, my, my father was receiving death threats um, and, and there was police security when I was with my father and it wasn't with, with when it was with my mother. And this didn't trouble me. My mother was asking, hey, you know, should we should we have security, too, right now? So that 1993 year where I was completing eighth grade and beginning ninth grade was a very troubling time for me. And looking back at it, I was quite depressed in some of my behavior and my sleep patterns. And when I would you know do my homework, I would come home and sleep and I would stay up to like one o'clock and do my homework and then like, you know, play video games and I, and I you know my grade slipped in eighth grade but I already had got one thing I, I was pretty close to getting into high school once I got into prep I you know kind of just you know kind of blew off the second half of eighth grade and and, and I remember having a, t- a meeting with my mom and the, our, my eighth grade teacher uh, mr. Ribzik, if you're hearing this thank you for your commitment and, and and toughness on me and caring enough even though I you know you probably could let me slide on out of eighth grade he's caring enough to say Russell well you're not doing your, your best work but I think looking back, I was really just disturbed by, by everything that had happened, by my uncle's passing and just really didn't know how to handle it. I think it was traumatic. And and um, I think my, my parents perhaps overlooked that. And This is not a knock on them. It just was what it was. Right. I think it was an honest mistake. I think everything was happening very quickly. And I think no one could have quite understood or imagined how it impacted me. And I didn't even understand at the time how it impacted me. But I think it did. It did very deeply. And then later on that year to not have the family around, right? And going into prep. So anyway, I had the Kairos experience and there were these wonderful letters and I still have them somewhere that my sister and brother scribbled and my father and my mother wrote me. And I never really had understood the depth of their love for me. And I think in the midst of everything, I had uh, forgotten that, right? And that's, you know, again, love, right? To understand that your parents love you. And even though things don't go perfectly, even though if, you know, my father, you know, didn't have the ability or, or the opportunity to communicate to me that, hey, I'm not going to be in new york where i can come to your basketball games and come see you but i'm going to have to move to paris and you're not going to see me until christmas you're not going to be coming to baltimore anymore much often you know and, and but yeah good luck in school in a few days right you're this brand new school right with these brand new kids and all these why all these white kids let's be frank you know so it was like what am i you know what am i supposed to do and i'm getting all these questions about my dad playing for the skins and on the newspaper and my dad you know kids literally always say hey my, my dad wanted me to ask you this you know, it was really, you know, it was intrusive, it was uncomfortable, it was awkward, you know. Um, but at that Kairos, my junior year, I really came to understand that a lot of my classmates were in their own ways struggling with their own challenges in their homes and in their lives, parents who were alcoholics, classmates who had lost siblings to illness. And just so many struggles I think everybody as teenagers grow up with. And I just I think I had told myself that these uh, privileged white kids were somehow immune from these same challenges that I was facing, and, and, and woe is me, right? So I think once that that lie had been dispelled in my mind, it opened me up. And then I had the last four, five quarters at prep, I was on the honor roll, four of the five. Um, I immediately sought student leadership positions and was, you know, ran for president of the yard. I was later told I won that position, by uh, even though I was told I lost by five votes. I think I scared the bejeebus out of the Dean's and some other people. Um, I've been a little bit of a rebel rouser and troublemaker <laughs> um, while I was there and co-founded the Black Student Union, not to say those two are synonymous, but I definitely pushed the envelope with my teachers and the Dean's um, with the dress code. I grew a beard and got a doctor's note that said I couldn't shave because of a skin condition, you know, even though I was supposed to be clean shaving. I, I did all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think there was no way, you know, they wanted me to be president now. If someone actually stole the vote from me, who knows? And I I really don't care. And in hindsight, I think my senior year would have been far worse and more challenging if I had been president of the yard as basically president of the school. But I did get on student government and served there in in a number of other positions, yearbook. I coached. That was the first student coach in history on the freshman basketball team. Had a great time left um, with the Jesuit medal and really a much better sense of who I was and what my capacity was to lead, to serve. Um, And I would later be told by my father and my uncle, and I've actually seen, my father rather, and my godfather, Abner Haynes. And I've seen this play out and it's kind of disturbing, but it's a reality. And I think a lot of folks don't understand, but um, I wasn't afraid of white people. And I've been in environments where I've actually had people more or less. I actually had someone who was uh, an African immigrant in a business situation Be very fascinated by my ability and my ease with which I went up and approached people who were white and spoke to them, right? And this is a thing, right? And I know my white listeners may be shocking, but you know, uh, my godfather, who's now in his early 80s, grew up in Texas, was the first African American to play at a white school in Texas, said, Yeah, Russell, you're not afraid of white people and we need that leadership. And I never understood, afraid of white people. Like, I've never been afraid of white people. Like, I might have felt I might have in my mind had an inferiority complex for a while. I'll admit that in high school, right? I struggle with that. And why do they have and Why don't I have this and that? And, you know, maybe they're smarter than me because I'm failing Latin and they know Latin, but they had Latin in eighth grade. I didn't have Latin in eighth grade, you know, but I overlooked that and maybe said, maybe maybe I'm just not as smart as they are, which wasn't the case. Right. On that level. Right. That's that's ignorant. Uh, but, then, you know, once I had that confidence and understood, you know, that they were all equals. Right in terms of capacity and capability that i'm like well i know i can do my best i'm gonna run for office i'm gonna lead in this i'm gonna serve here and lead here and be a part of campus ministry and do this this and this and coach basketball and whatever i never i took that for granted and that just uh tells me i guess how privileged i've been in my life and my education uh to be able to have that realization and say man well then if i can lead in that regard maybe i can help build a bridge right and so last the last episode you heard me talk about unity But I said at the end of that episode, I don't want unity at the at the cost of of justice. Right. At the cost of truth, um, at the cost of healing. Right. And some people want unity because they don't want to they don't want to be disturbed. And there's a great saying, and I forget who says it. So forgive me. But uh, was it comfort the disturbed and disturbed the comfortable. Right. And so I definitely want to be as a follower of Christ to comfort the disturbed. Right. But I think the comfortable need to be disturbed um and 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 that's how i set about my time and went to trinity college and man had a great four years there uh you know co- co-president of the black student union by my second semester freshman year you know president of the dorm you know uh, i wrote opinion pieces in the newspaper i had a jazz radio show this is all freshman year right um you know later would be a vice president Student Government for the Multicultural Affairs led a campus protest that was very successful in getting resources for students of color, um, including it, a better focus on retention, but securing campus houses. Um, I should post a picture of it. I have it on my bookshelf here of, of me helping lead that protest. And, and, and I did say helping. There were some other very uh, brilliant women and men who were with me and behind me. And in reality, I was the face of it. I was the front man. I was the student government vice president and, and soon to be student government president elect. But without my my brothers, uh, Fia Adamensa and Charles Botts and Elaine Davis and um, man, and I know I'm forgetting a lot of names. There were brothers and sisters in the Asian and Latin community, in the LGBTQ community, um, and in a broader uh, you know white community from different aspects as well. Who, people who just cared, who just knew we were on the right side of of justice and healing and uh, of making sure Trinity had a place for people who were, were not part of the mainstream. And this is what I said at PrEP, right, the, the other, right? You have these institutions who were founded uh, in the 1800s and 1700s for white men of a certain class and how those institutions evolve to be inclusive. And how do we evolve in terms of what's taught in the classroom, what values are, are, are being communicated in student life and from the president and from the deans and from the board and from the faculty, right? And, and, and what does that mean when you complete your education at these institutions? Who are you? What kind of men and women are there? And are we prepared to participate in a global society and uh, to be um, people who are just and fair and loving and, and, and competent and capable, right? Um, to to serve right and that's always the the challenge so it was a very quick four years in hindsight there Um, in some ways it was extremely lonely as well being um, at the top right student government president there a lot of benefits 2000 person school Um, now I was treated very well um, and saw the best of the best of the school but also as I again as I spoke about in my last episode saw the worst of the worst and that was a very uh, challenging dynamic for me at times and very isolating at times. And I had friends who would tell me they wouldn't let uh, me see or hear certain things uh, because I was student. Government. Like my classmates wouldn't let me know about the drug abuse that was going on. Right. the alcohol or whatever, and because I was a student government president and they want, want to put me in a position where I have to lie or, or leave something out or, you know, or where I might be compelled to say something that could, you know, risk compromising another student, right? And actually, in hindsight, I probably appreciate that. I might have been kind of pissed at the time. Like, man, I'm I'm cool. I ain't gonna say nothing. But, you know, at the same time, I was, you know, sometimes placed in that unique position where I had to, to, to walk a fine line, right, Um, about my position as a student, and also as a leader, and then also as someone who kind of, in essence, kind of had to speak for the entire student body to the board on a quarterly basis. Or sometimes the president of the school would call my room if I had a quote in the newspaper he didn't like. It was always funny. The faculty and the and the staff always read the newspaper, and the students didn't. And the faculty and staff took it as bible, you know, and I would make it drop a quote in there, and they'd you know freak. You know, you guys aren't going to really do that, are you? I, I don't know. I just thought we might. <laughs> you know, I, I would give the quote, and you know, literally sitting down over dinner with my friends who ran the newspaper, and we didn't always we were friends. We didn't always agree. But the editors, uh, two of the three editors I had during my two years at, at, uh, as president, two of the three editors of the newspaper were freshman dorm mates of mine, right? And, and one of which is here in D.C. at CNN, I'm still friends with to this day. And we go to baseball games from time to time. It's kind of funny in hindsight now, right? But we would go down and argue, you know, after he put something in print I didn't like. You know, that kind of thing. Two thousand person school with a radio station, a newspaper and all these wonderful things that we kind of had that relationship. And that closeness, which was, you know, caused friction, of course. Um, but it was a long, a lonely time, you know, in, in a lot of ways. I think I, I pursued the leadership positions. I think wanting to uh, find a piece of wholeness, right, through the public acknowledgement, right, um, and through the position and, and through the authority um, that it gave me. And I think it didn't really, uh, it didn't quite, you know, give me that peace that I wanted. And um, it was, it was tough. So. Moved uh, to Boston, I participated in a program called United Leaders. Shout out to my United Leaders, now defunct. My dear brother, Larry Harris, um, who I think at some point we're gonna have on this podcast. Definitely gonna have him probably pretty soon on the Good Word Digital podcast to share some of his expertise in the social entrepreneurship and political realm. Um, Did an eight week program housed at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. So I majored in political science at, at, at Trinity and really thought I might, you know, jump in and run for office sooner than later, right, or be active as a career path in politics. But, um, you know, we lived in Boston, lived on Tufts campus for eight weeks in the hot summer with no air conditioning on the fourth floor of a dormitory. And I ate the, ate the cafeteria food, which wasn't as good as Trinity's, by the way, at least in the summertime now, I don't, I don't know, but anyway. Um, man, had an amazing experience and got to meet a lot of interesting people. And this is in 2001, after the 2000 election, right, the Gore Bush election. Right. And it was a very interesting time in America in terms of Supreme Court had kind of decided what was going to happen in Florida, who the president was going to be. We had a lot of people who were involved in that campaign kind of come through and give us uh, various discussions and insight as to what might happen uh, going forward in, in the political realm and in America. Um, and of course, this is in the months leading up to 9-11, right? So I'm at Harvard that summer. I uh, interned for Steve Grossman, who was the former chair of the Democratic Party, and who was running for governor. And that was a very interesting experience. I did a lot of opposition research, and this is before the internet, where I literally would go down to the office and use Xerox. You would xerox the paper <laughs> uh to see who the other donor i think the donors of the uh, opposition were and they would bring back these binders where i had to sit all day xeroxing, and to go do that like a few times and uh <clears throat> and then i went and spent four weeks where i uh, interned in the boston office for senator for then senator uh, john kerry and um that was also an interesting experience got to some exposure on uh welfare reform i think clinton had just kind of like signed that in the law and that also was an interesting time, and made some uh, some good friends in that office. Some of which I'm still somewhat in touch with, um, who were on his staff there. Um, and then I, you know, decided I wanted to stay in Boston. I had two job interviews lined up the day of 9/11. I had an offer from Common Cause, Massachusetts. I wasn't going to pay me much, but it was a nice offer, and I knew I to, if nothing else, I could accept that offer to hang out in Boston. My thought being I'd hang out for a couple of years, work and then go to grad school because there's all these wonderful grad schools in Boston. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I had a lot of friends in Boston. I had uh, two first cousins, one at Tufts uh, and one at Harvard. And then I had an extended family cousin who paid football at Boston College. So between the three of them and my dear brother Larry, who I roomed with on College Avenue, and then I had two other friends from high school who were still at Tufts, three, two or three. Um, and I was right down the street from Trinity. I'd hop back to Trinity sometimes and go to a couple parties and stuff, you know, still trying to like hold on to the revelry and the, being the man on that canvas a little bit too long. I kind of was like, you know, settling in after nine eleven. but I had two job interviews a day of nine eleven. Both job interviews got frozen never had those interviews. Um, I think one of them or both of them were second interviews to second round. So I was pretty close to like potentially getting, you know, landing an offer perhaps. I'll never know. And, um, Ended up taking the common cause job and was, you know, kind of just living hand to mouth. I applied to law school. A lot of people don't even know that, right? I applied to law school. I took the LSAT. I took the LSAT prep course and did not put the work in. It was so half hearted. I don't even think I had half a heart to really want to go to law school. It's just like 9 11 happened. Everybody kind of panicked, right? Like, you know, are we going to be attacked again? Is. Are we gonna to go to war? You know, is the economy gonna you know, like be permanently damaged? Like everybody, like I think law school applications in the in the in the spring of 2002 were probably one of the highest ever, right? Like the, the you know, all the LSAT, you know, tests were oversubscribed. Like it was crazy, right? So um, I remember you know, sitting for the LSAT and just you know having a headache. My score was—I don't even remember my score, but it was like embarrassingly low, like terrible. I applied to three law schools in D.C. <laughs> Did not get into any of them. I thought I might at least have gotten waitlisted somewhere and, you know, kind of kicked the idea of law school around, but I really wasn't feeling law school. Um, you know, came home within a few weeks, had a job, Best Friends Foundation, working in D.C. public schools, was there for 13 months. Um, and Elaine Bennett, uh, the wife of Bill Bennett, learned some very interesting things. Um, learned a lot. Um, you know, uh, made some great relationships Mr. George Sanker. I still owe a phone call. Um, who is now uh, I think principal of a Christian school um, was able to build some great relationships there. Many times was helped found Washington Jazz Academy. 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 Um, was also um, my all sister all there for a while and, and spent a lot of time. Pauline Hamlet, um, Laurie Williams, who's an amazing uh, jazz vocalist. Look her up. Um, just an amazing time uh, there a challenging time they didn't get some grant funding me and five other people got laid off after 13 months of me being there and I ended my time and but um, was able to get over to to GW but in that time you know it was when I um, you know I had accepted Christ at 16 and didn't really know what to do with it right and in the Christian tradition I mean I've been baptized Catholic but in the Christian tradition you accept Christ and uh you know as your lord and savior when you're when you're of age right and so i had done that and, and around this kairos time i mentioned earlier where i was really kind of grappling with with who i was and where i fit in and again always having this understanding of who god was in my life i had accepted christ um this is october of 95 or there about right so before the kairos right so it kind of had opened the door for me right in my heart in my mind but i didn't really have discipleship was not interested in church Right, or some corny youth group like yeah you know, get out of here with that like whatever I'm a, you know taking it I'm sleep and go watch football or watch you know basketball on Sunday and do my homework right like, that was Sunday in high school man you know you know you can miss me with all that you know <laughs> stuff right and my mom was not gonna she had fought me for a while when I was younger she said I'm not fighting him anymore and I was happy about that right um so then later on you know really through college you know there were opportunities but was really not you know either. Um, you know sought guy in my own way at times but really in, in struggle and grapple with a lot of things still trying to heal and overcome some of the challenges of my youth right the hurt of my parents divorce and and different things that had not really been resolved in my mind in my heart from that right um, but you know came home after my year in Boston and was like you know really felt like I could have had a decision in terms of you know who do I who did I who did I want to be in life and I always knew God was real, right? I always had faith in that, even though I had not pursued it, right? Um, but really, you know, wanted to. And so I did, I was baptized, I think it was 2002, around that time. Um, and that was an important public decision and declaration of my faith. Um, and really, you know, felt, you know, um, the impartation of the Holy Spirit. I know that's a profound thing for a lot of people to grasp that, right? like. What is this is it going to get spooky, but it's in the Bible and I'm not equipped and maybe I can have my, my one of my I have two brother-in-laws now who are pastors and I probably should have both of them on and and, and articulate this further. Um, but the Holy Spirit is a gift of God impartation. Right. And if you pray and seek and focus on the spirit, you know, you know, like you can get that that leading. Right. People say trust your gut. You know, well, for me, my gut is the Holy Spirit. Right. I pray in my time of meditation, of quiet, of listening right to that spirit. And, and sometimes in times of deep trouble and distress and anxiety and exhaustion, turn my attention, right? And I'll just say I've avoided some very uh, awful situations that, that had I allowed my temper or my human uh, flesh to determine my reaction and my response that I would have you know, certainly been in, in a very bad way, maybe even in jail or dead, right? By some of the human inclinations of how you respond, right? But I, by the grace of God, turned my attention to the spirit and was able to arrive at a place where I was able to endure a moment a circumstance, endure an individual, right? Who's, you know, have been calling me everything but a child of God, right? Or even threatening me, right? And I've had these things happen, right? I've seen a few things and lived a few things in my life. Haven't always talked about it. Don't need to, but I'm going to talk about it here. I hope I can be an example and an inspiration for somebody else, even just one other person um so anyway was baptized but again still really not having you know uh, uh, much discipleship was disappointed sometimes but i did again have some people around me um you know i had again mr george sanker right um who really helped me at various points but then i just dove in uh, head first um to a man was church in, in silver spring new hampshire avenue the church has since undergone some challenges i'll just say you can google it if you really want to know and unfortunately, he's had to change its name and kind of reposition. But I was able to grow a lot there and um, ministered there in the middle school, volunteered and, and also to young adults and had the chance to speak and teach to both groups on occasion. And um, for about a year and a half, learned a lot there, um, did a missions trip to Guatemala. Right. So in the backdrop of all that, I was also you know, engaging from time to time in various business interests with my father. And some of this, I probably don't even remember a whole lot of in great detail. I know my father was practicing law and he had been an NFL agent. I think I talked a little bit about that in the last episode. And you know, I had some interesting success and stories. I got to talk to Jerry Jones when I was in like 13 or 14, when he was negotiating a contract there. And that was a unique experience. But really, in some ways, you know, we're trying to get back to that and figure out, you know, what was the next business step? You know, I didn't see myself working. I wasn't really enthusiastic about a career path, but I really had a lot of uncertainty, right, about that. You know, I didn't know if I, I thought for a time I might want to be in the nonprofit education world. But certainly getting laid off from the Best Friends Foundation left a bad taste in my mouth and really helped me realize that, um, you know, I didn't feel like I guess I had, you know, enough control over my fate, right, to really be able to chart my path, right? To be at the, the whim of some grant writer who may may or may not have written a good grant or some foundation that may or may not have sought it fit to fund that grant and then I lose my job, you know, so, um, so in that backdrop was free trying to figure it out and ended up landing on my feet at George Washington in the multicultural center there and, and just had a very, uh, rich six year experience there, got my master's degree there, um, you know, in, in 2007 and promptly formed my first company and, um, you know, really began my journey as an entrepreneur. And in next week's episode, I'll begin to speak. I'm going to be sharing the audio from a speech I gave a few weeks ago at UMBC that kind of talks about some of the lessons learned and really kind of, again, was geared towards that college audience about, how, you know, what they can do now, right, to pursue their entrepreneurship. Um, but just talking broadly and not getting into the details because those will come out as we go forward. But... The real question I had is I lead up to, you know, again, in my 20s at GW, finishing grad school, formed my first company, had been dabbling with my father in various pursuits of his primarily, right, up until that point. Um, can I be Christian and be a businessman? And I really grappled with this, and, and a lot of times this felt very insecure and thought it was not possible to lead a life of faith in any kind of public or expressive ongoing fashion, but yet still pursue entrepreneurship and business, right? Do economics, does the marketplace uh, and entrepreneurship and Christ, can they can they exist, right? So that was number one I struggled with. Number two was my responsibility to my family's achievements and primarily my responsibility to my uncle Reginald F. Lewis's achievement, right? And and my family, particularly my family generally, but being raised by my mother, primarily were very achievement based. Right. And so um, those the achievement was really an important uh, thing. um, Important. uh, The responsibility to that achievement, my achievement was emphasized. Right. So my responsibility to that achievement was something that really I felt in my heart. No one ever told me I had a responsibility to it. No one ever put the pressure on me, but I always felt it, that that someone had to pick up the ball, right? My uncle had died at 50, right, when I was 13, and my father had it for a while, and my aunt took the company and divested, and then it was left to my generation, and, and I'm the leader, and, and you know, and I'm a, well, I am a leader, right? And so, you know, it seemed like the obvious thing that someone had to p- kind of pick up the baton, right, as a... As a as a black person, right, um, when you have this kind of success, when you have this amazing path that's been charted, there's amazing uh, social capital, this amazing institutional knowledge, right, and understanding that most people in the world don't understand about finance and business and, and what it really requires as an individual to overcome these things. Like someone had to, it's a responsibility for someone, particularly because I'm a black person in America, right, to build on that. And that's where I really took on that that responsibility and that, and that burden, but unfairly so really grappled with my uncle's life and, and its impact and my responsibility to it and you go to different places and you go to different circles and you know people discover you know my kinship to my uncle and would ask you know probing questions and say unique things and encouraging things but i say unique things in terms of things that make me think a little bit differently and it's fascinating to always get a outsider's perspective by outsider i say someone who was almost always outside of my family um and almost always didn't know or i never met with or worked with my uncle right so their take was was very somewhat presumptuous but still was very fascinating to hear and to understand, okay, what was their take on it, and you know, I probably maybe at times let other people's opinions or perspective impact me, right? Because their assumptions often were were false, right? Because reality, um, and oftentimes, is very different, um, particularly in a family dynamic. But I definitely struggled because I always I think I had the assumption that people who did know him um, would always would find it therefore obvious as to my sense of responsibility. And in fact, I always thought that people in my family would have would actually share that sense of responsibility in the exact same way that I felt it. Right. (laughs) And which is really foolish on my part, naive on my part. Um, And you you come to learn as you get older that. Even though you're related to people, people have different upbringings, different values, different perspectives, different experiences, different views. And while there's many things and values that you share and, and your love of family overcomes all deficiencies, right? Or at least it should or we try to make sure that it does right in all families and situations. It does not mean that what is apparent and obvious to you. Is going to be apparent and obvious to them. So to me, it was always apparent and obvious that someone had to carry this forward. And, and why not me? Right. No one else seemed to be taking a particular interest or moving in that direction. Um, but of course, others don't always see it that way. And and uh, and so it became, I think, a burden. And um, I wrote in the blog post that just published um, last week. I had to come to the realization that I had to adjust my ambition and my ambition for so long had been I have to be a successful business person, have a responsibility to be a successful business person. And even at times, perhaps I was entitled (laughs) to be successful because of my uncle, but not only because of my uncle, because of my great, great grandfather who escaped slavery and had his own uh, farm and had his own blacksmith shop and had two U.S. patents or because of my great grandfather. Who was one of the first thirty-five African-American attorneys in the state of Maryland, and had significant real estate holdings, and um, was very active politically and in the Catholic Church in Baltimore. Uh, the son of a black man and a white Irish immigrant woman, right, <clears throat> um, or because of my grandmother's aunts and uncles who owned bail bondsman shops and blacks and and uh, uh, shoe stores and liquor stores, right, in, in in East Baltimore, right, and and I think my my great aunt who's now ninety-five, almost ninety-six said that like a quarter million dollars a month or a week or some of their amount was estimated to have gone through their businesses, right? um, in, in East Baltimore. And so they're very much a part of the fabric and the economy, right? Of their neighborhood and their community, right? So you really begin to, to understand these things. And of course, what my uncle achieved, what my father had achieved in, in having one of the largest African-American-owned law firms in Baltimore at the time of my uncle was passing. Um, to this day, there's, I think, there's four... Uh, district court judges that my father hired and trained in Baltimore. And this is like in the 80s, right? Um, Which is really was unheard of at the time. And of course, my father went on to work with my uncle and take over the business upon his passing. And so just feeling that like responsibility. um, So I won't say it was pressure, but I definitely felt like it was a burden. Like, man, like, A, this should be a hell of a lot easier (laughs) than it's been. And B, why can't people who love me and understand this history and share this lineage with me understand that and help lift me up right um and and encourage me um as opposed to suggesting i take alternate career paths or ask questions that Again, to me, it's obvious why I'm doing what I'm doing. Why don't you get it? <laughs> you know, um, so I was really challenged by that. I didn't expect that resistance, right? I didn't expect that critique. But in that critique and that resistance, by God, it has made me stronger, right? It has given me uh, a depth of uh, understanding beyond my own. It's given me and taught me to to love um, beyond my needs, right? So if my family or other people don't give me what I need, then then you know that shouldn't matter right i still have a love and an openness and appreciation for them relationship is different however right and that's a challenge right um sometimes i have to love you from afar where you are god bless you i love you friends family alike people right um there are people who've cussed me out who i love dearly i still do didn't know them very long even some of them but just wasn't going to work out people who walked away from me in business and in life and i still love them and wish them well um and, you know, not to say I'm still not troubled or, or disappointed, um, not angered, but disappointed that relationships didn't work out or haven't worked out or haven't gone how I've wanted them to go or how I certainly intended for them to go. And not to say the culpability was all on them, right? Often it was, you know, and perhaps sometimes, if not oftentimes, it was all on me, right? But nonetheless, I still, still there's still a love, there's still an appreciation for their humanity, for who they are, for who God made them to be and for their Journey their path in life. Right. Which is not going to be perfect. Right. By whoever's judgment of what perfect is. Right. Only God is perfect. Only, you know, Christ only truly knows the heart of what's in a man or a woman. Right. So with that responsibility, um, I've had to grow. And so there's been the journey. Right. So, you know, you, you put the uh, the entitlement aside. You put the the naivete aside. You have to grow through that. And that takes time. Right i said i formed my first company in 11 11 years ago this fall right um i've been pursuing entrepreneurship in some form or fashion since grade school um as a at least a part-time pursuit almost since college and as a full-time pursuit for over eight years now right and so um it's who i am right i was a kid selling the basketball cards on the playground and you know had extra cash you know from hustling during recess <laughs> you know um you know that was that was me in grade school and um you know i had, all, I had two or three jobs i think almost at all times for the most part in college not at all times sometimes i just had one um when i got to be student government president it was hard to have two <laughs> but um i liked having money i like a check um and so you know that was that was what i what i did um and i've tried different other You know, side pursuit, side hustles, if you will, before it was even called a side hustle. Um, I've learned some tough lessons in in doing that, right? Um, In addition to trying to do different deals and acquisitions, really going back. um, Man, I'm probably forgetting stuff, but at least till 2007, um, you know, being on the front lines. I've seen a lot of unique opportunities, met a lot of wonderful people and have some wonderful relationships to this day. And just been so blessed by that. But check out Adjusting My Ambition and And the the really, the one line is, if you don't have time to go read it, is real simple: adjusting my ambition, because the Bible tells us to do what seek ye first, the kingdom, and then all things are added, right? So for so long, I think I sought to match that achievement, to honor this achievement, right, which is noble, right? So even it can so even it, what you're trying to do can be noble, but God says, no, 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 no. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Then even those noble pursuits can be added, right? And I know there are people um, who serve on the front line of the homeless, right? And, 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 and of so many wonderful causes, right? To seek, to be hands-on, to, to love people, right? But, you know, and, and want more capacity, want to be able to do more, right? So even for them, right? And I'm not saying I know any anecdotes of, of their stories, but seek ye first, you know, and say you know, it's not just seek you first instead of going to try to become a millionaire because you want to be rich and buy a luxury car and live in a huge house, right? It's not even just for that, which some people may say is a shallow pursuit, right? In certain circles, right? It's say no, you want to do noble things, you want to love and serve people, you want to have capacity to do that at scale, which I do, right? You want to have the resources to be able to do that at scale, I do, right? I understand that economies. Um, are created and jobs are created right when you have resources to do so and know how to do so you can touch lives change families when you can empower them to make a living right when you can give them uh, an honest day's work it's in the Bible an honest day's work deserves this wage right and that wage you know that can be empowering and, and lend to their humanity and give them the ability to better serve and to love right how about that for a perspective of, of what a christian can be in the marketplace wow right so Seek ye first before I can even get to that before God can give me these things before I can have the resources and the capacity I got to seek the kingdom first and man that's been hard because I felt like man my uncle was the you know they say he was the wealthiest black man ever and I know this person and that person and I went to these great schools and got this great education I was student government president i knew the trustees and then seek ye first seek ye first seek ye first so I've had to arrive at that right and it's been it's because of what The world will call failure because deals haven't worked out, because relationships have been fractured, because partners have walked away, because partners have died, right? Because deals didn't work out, because I've faced racism, right? You know, subtly, but yet blatantly in some cases, some cases subtly. I've had people cuss me out. I've had people beg me to help them in one instance, and the next instance, like, nah, never mind, (laughs) or don't want to pay me for it, but begging me for help. I'm like, well, look, you know, so I've had to go through so many of these things, so many deals, so many iterations, you know, I once told a friend, I, I got more pivots than Tim Duncan, man. It's not a pivot. My uncle's motto was, keep going no matter what. By the grace of God, I do. And but how you do that is, is what my I won't say my secret sauce is. I do that through through Christ Jesus, who strengthens me, who orders my steps. Um, and that's really what it's about. So here we are. This is probably a little bit longer edition of the Russell Fugit podcast. And I'm Russell Fugit. Thanks for listening this far, man. It's I've shared a lot today and I'm gonna be sharing more in the coming weeks. But real quick, what are you gonna get here in this space? Thanks for subscribing. Tell others to subscribe, you know, post it to social media. You can always direct message me if you don't got my number. I'm assuming people who listen to this initially are gonna people who know me, but eventually I'm hoping, Lord willing, audiences will grow and maybe people will discover this podcast weeks, months, years, decades from now. God bless you. Thank you. I hope this has encouraged and helped you and enlightened you in some fashion. Something I've said, something I've shared. Um, man, by the grace of God, I go right by the grace of God. And I've come to my end. And that was part of the injustice in my ambition. When you come to your end is where God begins. Right. So when you tried everything, you know, to try, you try what God tells you to try. Right. You get in that place. And I can talk more about that. And I probably will in the future. But look on this podcast. You're going to have me talking about, you know, leadership, legacy and love. And then oftentimes it's going to be the intersection of a, of a variable. So I like three XL, like, you know, three, you three know, X, three extra large. Right. So leadership, legacy and love kind of at the cross section. So I'm hoping to see me, i hoping. I'm going to be interviewing unique individuals. Right. So I'm going to have some people who are, who are in industry and in different aspects of life. And I'm not going to get in so much to what they do. Some of it will. But I really want to be autobiographical in terms of the format. And then kind of find that cross-section in their life, right, of, you know, in their autobiography of where leadership, legacy, and love have, like, mattered, right, to them, um, and who they are as, as people, right? So, of course, you know, we always look at people, um, you know, in their position that we look up to, who we aspire to be, but we don't know about the people and the challenges um, and the struggles that have, you know, gotten them to that place or what they've experienced and what they learned, right? So that's really what that, what's that cross-section. Then we're also going to do some special stuff. We are going to talk about my uncle, like for real like what he accomplished was amazing and i think there's still an opportunity for some unique perspectives as other people are talking about him on a podcast on a regular basis i'd like to know about it because i haven't seen it and i want to keep my uncle's legacy alive because i know how much it has inspired me and i know how much it impacts others to keep going no matter what and my uncle was born to a teenage mother who's a high school dropout my grandmother 93 years old god bless her and um man and what he was able to go on and do like you know how can you not feel empowered right it's really about your attitude and about your spirit um that that can can push you forward to keep going no matter what but we'll get to that so there'll be a lewis legacy some special editions where we'll talk to some people some of my family members i'm hoping will join me here i'm also hoping there's some other entrepreneurs out there who i know who i think you know it's in their own way are following in my uncle's footsteps i kind of want to tell those stories in kind of that in that context as well and then really at the end of the day is the goal for you here is to be encouraged um you know you know you have your own vision of leadership legacy and love and 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 you know, i want everybody to be encouraged I want people to know you know more deeply who christ is and that's not to say that this is not a space for people who don't believe in christ i want my my jewish brothers my agnostic brothers my muslim brothers um my brothers from all other, sisters, brothers and sisters from various faith backgrounds to feel like they can come to this space and be encouraged, right, and be empowered, and and hopefully that's something I say, and how you might see me living my life out on social media or on on different platforms in my blog, and then here in this podcast, because when life happens, I'm going to talk about it right here, because I have a lot of interesting thoughts, and I just keep it to myself, but... I've been discouraged by the Holy Spirit to stop keeping it to myself because I don't think all the thoughts I have and ideas I have are, are, are mine, right? I, I like to believe that sometimes I, I get a little something in my gut, <laughs> if you will, right? That says that that gives me maybe have a little bit of truth to it, or at least it's worth unpacking uh, what it might be to discover it. Maybe some of you guys will want to engage in dialogue with me on social media. And hey, hit me up, you know, DM me at message me on on Twitter facebook what have you um you know if you got my number text me let's have the dialogue right um so i want everybody to be here hey and love is universal right um legacy is is, is universal and, and, and timeless in a sense and leadership man we need leadership in this world right now right we need kind compassionate humanitarian thoughtful leadership beyond our needs beyond ourselves, right we got love past our preferences um, love beyond our comfort zone and, and find ways where we can serve wherever we are in our life and our family and our work and our school. We just need to. Um, so I'm hoping that my story and what I share and what I, other people I bring here to this space will be an example um, and be an encouragement, right? And, and create awareness. There's some great stories that I have uh, lined up, um, one of which I already have in the can. Um, If someone who I just think needs to be profiled. So it's going to be a little bit of a mix in this space. I'm really, you know, can't pin down what it's going to look like 10 episodes in. Although I actually do have a 10 episode roadmap. So more accurately, I can't pin down what it's going to look like 20 episodes in, 50 episodes in, 100 episodes in, you know, as as months and time goes by. Um, I definitely want to get into parenting and fatherhood sometimes. And some of my guests may be repeat. And maybe we'll touch on some of these topics. Right. Um, We'll probably get a little more into the spiritual um, side of things in terms of, you know, understanding and unpacking, you know, what's happening in the modern day Christian church. Right. Um, I definitely want to talk, touch on issues of race and politics and and, and what's happening there from time to time. Don't want to get too political, but um, I think there's some critical issues sometimes that need to be discussed. So we'll see. But for now, I think I'm really going to be sticking with the legacy, leadership and love. And having some interesting guests the Lewis Legacy. And um, I'm hoping everybody will be encouraged ultimately, right? And perhaps inspired and maybe want to learn more about about what's happening um, in the world or what I'm up to or what one of my guests are up to. So with that, hey, thanks for giving me so much of your time and lending me your ear. I'm Russell Fugit. This has been the Russell Fugit Podcast Leadership Legacy and Love you can uh, check me out at RussellFugit.com. I'm on all social media at Russell Fuget, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Medium, where you can read my blog. And uh, I'll be blogging there every couple of weeks. I have a backlog. I have stuff I wrote in 2013 <laughs> that I was never got the nerve to publish. Just didn't see the point. Was insecure. Was scared. So man i'm freshening it up (laughs) and cleaning it polishing it off blowing the dust off and cutting it loose man and that's what i'm doing on this podcast so working on the intro and uh the production quality will improve here so thanks for listening thanks for bearing with me and uh and i look forward to, to hearing some some feedback from you guys on this so stay tuned um episode two will probably drop just before thanksgiving i love you god bless you be safe and Go vote if you hear this before Election Day.